Finding new approaches in agriculture that are better for people, planet, and profits takes an extraordinary level of collaboration. And that's what the California Cotton and Climate Coalition is attempting to do by bringing together textile brands, researchers, and farmers. The basis behind it is a group of people who are coming together in a clear and transparent way using data sound methods to verify making you know, a commitment to each other that we're going to make improvements. That's Canon Michael, president and CEO of Bulls Farming Company. He's part of this coalition that calls themselves C4, which was organized by Fibershed, led by Rebecca Burgess. You know, when we're talking about markets and driving markets a certain direction to have a third party academic in there doing that work, it's been extremely helpful. So we've been very, very grateful for the role of universities in this. C4 is a real attempt to evolve regenerative practices for California cotton and improve the quality and sustainability of textile brands. A clear handshake in the supply chain is a nice thing to have because people can learn to trust each other and work together. And I think that's kind of the whole premise is how do we work together and make better products and tell better true stories and get the consumer a cotton product to feel really good about when they put it on or sleep on it or whatever. The collaboration it takes to build more sustainable supply chains on today's Future of Agriculture podcast. Well, hello, fellow ag nerds. Thanks so much for joining me for another episode of the Future of Agriculture. My name is Tim Hamrich, and every week you and I get to hear from the farmers, founders, innovators, and investors shaping the future of the ag industry. Well, I'm on the road here again this week, last week in Sacramento for the Almond Conference, this week in Fargo, North Dakota for the DIRT workshop, the soil health workshop here in Fargo. So forgive the travel mic yet again for the intro outro here, but we have a great episode here for you today. Uh, This episode and every episode this quarter is made possible thanks to the support of our quarterly presenting sponsor, which is Sound Agriculture. You just heard a month or so ago from Adam and Travis at Sound Ag about the cool work they're doing. And this is really a great time to talk about this source product because just about anywhere you look, fertilizer prices are high. In some cases, availability itself is a real problem. So finding a better source for crop nutrients going forward, I know is on top of a lot of people's minds. Well, believe it or not, that nutrient source might just be your soil. Source from Sound Agriculture unlocks more of the nutrients already in your fields, so you can apply less fertilizer while getting the yield you're counting on. Source is a foliar applied biochemistry that activates soil microbes to unlock more nitrogen and phosphorus. It works with the soil you've already got and the equipment you already use to wake up the soil. Sort of like caffeine for microbes, if you will. Visit sound.ag to learn more. That's just sound.ag. Thank you very much to Sound Agriculture for supporting this quarter of the Future of Agriculture podcast. All right, now back to today's episode about the work being done by the California Cotton and Climate Coalition, or C4. This is a great example of a group of people that aren't interested in the hype and the greenwashing that exists in so many quote-unquote sustainability circles out there. They're doing the real hard work of bringing the right people together, trying to collaborate, collecting the data, and finding ways to evolve the cotton industry in California, not only on sustainability fronts, but also profitability fronts as well. I think this is really a model that many other ag initiatives can learn from, uh, but it also shows that this requires a lot of work, and it's not so easy as putting content out there, building a brand. It takes data, it takes hard conversations, it takes collaboration, and you're going to hear all about that here today. 
Uh, you're going to hear from Canon Michael, president and CEO of Bulls Farming Company in Los Banos, California. He's the sixth generation from his family to work in the family farming business, which has farmed in California for over 160 years now. After working in commercial real estate himself, Cannon joined the family farm back in 1998, and they have since diversified from three crops at that time to over 20. Cannon's an advocate for California agriculture, intelligent water policy, we'll get into water a little bit in today's episode, and of course, environmental stewardship. Joining Cannon and I today is Rebecca Burgess, Executive Director of Fibershed, which is a 501c3 nonprofit focused on regionalizing the textile system and supporting growers to be more economically viable while rebuilding carbon stocks in the soil and providing transparency into the supply chains of textile brands. Rebecca has two decades of experience working at the intersection of ecology, fiber systems, and regional economic development. Her work as a vocationally trained weaver and self-trained natural dyer initially led her into wondering how the industrial-made clothes reflected or didn't reflect her values of transparency, connection, and land stewardship. She started her work with Fibershed focused on wool for regenerative grazing purposes and then was encouraged to expand into cotton as well, and she'll tell a little bit of that backstory. But I'm going to drop you into the conversation here where Ken and Michael is giving some of the historical context on the history of cotton production in California. Cotton has been a big uh, crop for the Central Valley for a long period of time, definitely more of the San Joaquin Valley, but uh, it has gone from a high of over 1.6 million acres, I think, when I started my career to down below 200,000 acres. It used to be mostly upland cotton, but has transitioned to what they would call an extra long staple or ELS cotton. Some people would know the name Pima cotton or Supima, but that again is a very uh, different kind of cotton and that can be grown in other places of the world. So California is due to our unique uh, Mediterranean climate is one of the uh, few places in the world that can grow this uh, really long staple cotton that can be uh, used in mostly very high quality knits and other products. So it's um, again, people say cotton and think one thing and uh, the cotton that we grow is really very much a specialty uh, crop unique in the world, sort of competing with uh, things like Egyptian or uh, Sea Island or other uh, kind of unique uh, cottons. But um, yeah, so I've been in the valley for a long time, but definitely has contracted uh, over time. But um, we're still we're still producing it and love to grow it. It's a it's a beautiful plant and uh, a great, uh, great fiber and with a great story behind it. Yeah. And, and that drop, I mean, to now like less than 20 percent of the acreage that it was when you started your career somewhere in that area. Is that just due to economics or I mean, what kind of what are the big drivers that have caused that situation? Yeah, a lot of it's been economics. Um, a lot of it has to do with some water stress and other issues and guys converting to crops where per drop they were going to get more value per drop of water. And so people invested a lot in some of the nut crops. Um, a lot of old cotton gins turned into almond hullers um, and things like that. But I think really it's also a function of this long-term legacy in the textile industry of this kind of race to the bottom, where uh, the idea is to source you know, fiber from the most inexpensive places in the world to produce textiles in the most inexpensive places in the world. You know, So I think what you've seen is, uh, unfortunately, the erosion of the high-quality industry and you know, it's led to a lot of uh, environmental and ethical externalities around cotton production around the world. So, um, you know, cotton is in definitely in some circles has gotten a, a black eye because of the way production has been handled and really kind of a unfortunate uh, way that the consumer has kind of thought that they need to have, you know, $52 t-shirts and, you know, a lot of excess that's really kind of created a lot of other 
problems in the system, but essentially, you know, cotton has been coming from places where people aren't paid fairly, the environment's abused, it's, you know, the garments are created in places that are effectively like, you know, sweatshops or slave shops where, you know, buildings collapse on people that are trying to, you know, make these things in other countries. And, you know, there's just been a lot of negativity. And so, um, again, it's, you know, cotton is such a wonderful fabric and wonderful natural fiber and has so many just great properties. And I don't know that I know one human being who doesn't have some article of cotton, whether they sleep on it or wear it on their underwear or shirts or whatever, you know, it's, it's, a, it's really this universally loved fiber, but unfortunately the, the stuff that goes on behind the scenes and the way we've kind of wanted to make it really cheap and kind of, you know, not with a great like story or traceability behind it. I, you know, I think we've kind of made some mistakes along the way, but we're hoping to kind of tell new stories and I think people are ready for positive textile stories. And there really are some, you know, fantastic ones. And I know that's Rebecca's done a great job of highlighting those and finding, you know, the folks who are making a big difference and, you know, it really does make a huge difference where you source things from. And I think cotton is probably the primary example of that. Right. And Rebecca, that starts to maybe set the stage for, for why this California Cotton and Climate Coalition got started. So maybe if you want to add on anything to what Cannon was just saying, but then also give us sort of the origin story of C4, as we'll call it. The genesis really was about focused on soil, focused on what it can do, its capacity as a reservoir for atmospheric carbon. And so being a vocationally trained weaver and a textile person, we started in wool systems and we started to re-envision what that could look like. And we developed something called a climate beneficial wool pool. And every brand I worked with was like, what about cotton? <laughs> what about cotton? Cotton's my favorite. <laughs> Where, where's the cotton? It just made it feel like, okay, what if we did a similar thing to the Marine Carbon Project where we brought in, maybe there's some researchers and technical assistance providers and people who want to explore what this means and the grower, you know, with Canon taking leadership. And honestly, like, there was a little bit of incentive provided, you could say, but then just leadership within the farm. Derek and Cannon just took the reins and were like, we can do all these things. Um, if that's the direction business wants to go, let's go. We'll go there with you. And they did. And I think that's the power of incentives versus regulation. I'm not coming out against regulation at all in this comment, but I'm just saying, how do we incentivize things? Where, where are we supporting each other to unleash our creativity. That's what's most interesting to me as a human being. And so the brands have come together because they were the ones asking for the cotton in the first place. <laughs> and we were like, okay, so now let's get together. And you need to probably work pre-competitively because most of you are not big enough to buy up all this cotton. And there's so much more they really need to be buying. But let's just start with what we can buy in year one and let's see how we can get it through a domestic manufacturing system. And so we're actually still working off that first harvest. We just got the yarn knit and dyed all the samples in Los Angeles and it dyed beautifully. They used the hardest color dye and they said, oh, this is great. So while there's been challenges in doing something farm forward, the brands have worked pre-competitively and they're sharing the yarn spec. Together. They're not competing and saying, I'm going to make this thing over here that's proprietary. They're actually working together and scaffolding minimums and coming out in a way where they're all going to go to market with the same story, basically. And they're all going to go to market with the yarn, but they're going to differentiate a little bit in how they construct the knit textile. So it's been a project of collaboration, coalition building, more communications than I could ever keep up with, <laughs> but I'm trying. 
And there's more brands coming all the time. They're just really excited. And they come to Canon individually. They come to other growers individually. Like the markets are changing. It's not just our coalition. There's many people out there gravitating this direction. We just happened to create a coalition so that brands could get over those mill minimums and work more collaboratively. Because each brand coming to Canon as an individual and saying, I want like two bales of cotton, is not that sustainable. So we want to build them into a coalition so they can take that together. And then it's not a bunch of time on him to like negotiate all these tiny contracts, which is less sustainable. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm curious with these brands, how much of this is them making sustainability commitments and trying to find ways to honor them versus them having customers that say, look, we want to pay more if you can promise me that this is, you know, produced in a certain way. Is it a mix of the two or is it kind of primarily one or the other? It's both as far as I can tell. Sustainability targets are primarily based in 45% reduction in CO2E by 2030 for most textile brands. And that mimics kind of our global goal of, well, it's almost there. There's about you know 50% reduction in CO2E by 2030. And I think 50% based on, I think, 1990 levels, I want to say. At least that's what California is doing. You know, we're basing it on early 1990 levels and trying to reduce by half by 2030 based on those early days levels. I think that's the global goal, but the textile industry has its own goal. And then you have that intergovernmental panel on climate change goal. And the textile industry has been basically trying to mirror that global intergovernmental panel on climate change goal. So California's fifth climate pillar is soil carbon sequestration. What I haven't seen yet, though, is even though governments are doing this work, I haven't seen the textile industry say, we're going to hit our 2030 goal with this many metric tons just from soil that is part of our supply chain. That is still something I would love to see, but I would love to see them commit to helping do that work without just commodifying the carbon. And I, I could be totally wrong on this, but it would be great if they just paid a lot more for the cotton <laughs> and didn't try to trade the carbon and the water and the ecosystem service credits around. Because I think if we're trying as a globe to reduce the carbon, we have to not maybe just start another industry of trading that carbon because we really need a net reduction. Anyway, that's a tangent. But back to this customer base, the customers are absolutely looking for more natural fibers. I see it all the time. They don't want to wear plastic. Some of them don't know about any better, but a lot of them are asking to wear natural fibers and they, and they want to know how those fibers are farmed. So I think between not wearing a lithosphere-based mined plastic material, pivoting to natural, and then asking those questions of, you know, how is this happening on the working landscape? Can we find out more? And beyond just a certification too, I think having a level of transparency Certifications are really important, but it is really amazing when you actually, these brands get to go visit Canon and Derek and get to actually like see the farm at work. That's even more powerful than just putting a stamp on it. So the customer is going to get that story too. No, that's great. And, and, and Canon, let's, let's shift to you on this. Um, you know, when did you first start hearing about it and what compelled you to want to get involved? Yeah, well, I mean, we've just been out there sort of exploring relationships and, you know, we've not been kind of afraid or ashamed to kind of show what we do here on the farm and wanting, you know, to educate and engage. And so, you know, Rebecca has been a great partner and 
just has done so much to to bring folks together and really, you know, saw value in what we were doing. And I guess, you know, kind of all the stars seemed to align that was getting interest in in cotton. Um, you know, I think we um first of all just had an openness. Um, I think my background has just allowed me to want people to come onto the farm and, you know, if there's something that the consumer is is wanting or if something that the, you know, world is wanting to see behaviorally differently, I I feel like we you know, obviously it has to make economic sense because we're still running a business, but, um, you know, I think we already were, were doing a lot of neat things and, and are still doing a lot of things and, and have been for a long period of time. So, you know, we've been on the same piece of land for 160 years or more. We've known what it takes to, you know, be sustainable before sustainability was even a buzzword or regenerative or any of this stuff. You know, soil is is like paramount to what we do. You know, we have to have strong, healthy soil to live year in and year out and we have to have strong healthy people and that are you know happy and so you know there's just some core fundamental things that have us uh, you know staying in business as long as we have i think that we just continue to build upon not that we ever just look back and say we can't learn or do better but um i just think we want to continue to build and partner and you know i think it's important in the natural world to understand that we've been iterating and making changes for years and years on our practices trying to get better but Anytime you start throwing like massive change into the system we've perfected for years, you know, you just open yourself up to risk and we're in an inherently risky environment where I can't control the weather. I can't control pests. I often, you know, don't have any say in the price that I get. And so, you know, throwing in additional variables, you know, just because people think they want to see a cover crop on top of a field doesn't necessarily mean that that's easy for me to execute. It's another crop to plant. It's another crop for me to you know, have to do something with before I, you know, plant the crop into it. I mean, you know, it's gotten a lot of press and coverage and a lot of the ideas also are coming from places other than California in terms of like regenerative, you know, a lot of the big monocultures that are, you know, these big rain fed monocultures, you know, it's not the same thing in California where we have a very different Mediterranean climate, but, but no, Rebecca has been great and the brands have been fantastic. And it's amazing to, to get people to, who've been dealing in cotton for years to actually see a cotton plant or a cotton flower. You know, it's like people are transacting volumes of these uh, quantities of these uh, products and using them and making great fabrics and things. But a lot of people have never seen a cotton plant or seen where it comes from or, you know, kind of understood it. So just making the connections and for us to understand the pain points of the brands have, has been good. You know, that's a, a clear handshake in the supply chain is a nice thing to have because people can learn to trust each other and learn to understand how to, you know, what people are challenged by and work together. And I think that's kind of the whole premise is how do we work together and make better products and tell better true stories and give the consumer a cotton product to feel really good about when they put it on or sleep on it or whatever. So, well, it, it is indeed a beautiful crop. I could definitely vouch for that, you know, and you, I thought you set the stage really nicely here, Cannon, for, for my next question, which is, you know, from what I understand for you, your business, you have always tried to be as sustainable as you possibly can, but there might've been some practices that didn't optimize for things like carbon storage that were affordable given the commodity cotton situation. So maybe with something like this, with C4, you're able to do more of these practices and potentially get a premium for it, is the way I understand. So can you talk about what practices are different, if any, uh, for this C4 cotton that you're producing versus how you had produced cotton in the past? Yeah, sure. There are some definitely fundamental differences about what we're doing. I will say we, we have had uh, a lot of the regenerative components for a very long period of time. Um, like animal grazing, we've been doing for decades with this local Basque family that has uh, sheep and goats and 
have been bringing them on for forever, you know, to graze off residues when appropriate, um, because we also grow food crops. So sometimes we can't integrate animals because of all the food crops that we have, um, which is again, one of those nuances between California and other places that aren't really growing as many different types of food crops. But, you know, cover crops we've used, um, you know, again, different soil health techniques, compost, manures, diverse rotation, you know, has been a thing. So a lot of these things have, have been out there. I, I think, you know, to have a credible, what I would call regenerative program, it needs to have a couple of things. It, it obviously needs to look different than a conventional, um, needs to be more programmatic. But our approach has really been also to listen to what the partners are looking for. You know, I think there's some, some pillars of regenerative, which would be like synthetic fertilizer reduction, you know, building soil organic matter as a real goal. So I've looked at it more, let's look at goals that people have and then sort of build upon those. You know, for some, it's been like growing a non-GMO cotton in the regenerative. Well, I mean, that's part of organic, you know, to grow non-GMO, but it hasn't necessarily been part of uh, regenerative per se, just because there's not a uh, standard at this point, other than an organic regenerative standard that's gotten some traction, but it's very difficult to comply with. So again, it sort of goes back to each partner really Everybody's sort of got a little bit of a different take on some of the pieces that they want to see in regenerative. But I think there are those kind of overarching, you know, reduce chemicals, reduce synthetic fertilizer, build soil organic matter, you know, layer in cover crops if you can, I would say here in California, because again, we don't get enough rainfall sometimes even properly germinate a cover crop. So I think, you know, for us, it's like, where can we also sequester carbon, which, um, you know, we, we've got a permitted compost site on the farm now where we're accepting um you know, municipal green waste. Um, so we're helping California meet its uh, climate change goals. You know, they've been asking for the urban citizen to collect more organics like food waste and green waste. And then at the same time, they've been saying we don't want that to go into landfills anymore because that's where it's breaking down and giving so much methane off um, that that's not part of, uh, you know, the climate strategy. And so we can take some of that material instead of it going to the landfill. We've got a spot here on the farm all regulated and permitted that we can turn that into an organic certified compost within 30 days, put it back onto the fields, you know, incorporate it into the field and, and sequester that carbon, build soil uh, tilth and structure, uh, which helps retain water, helps us use less uh, fertilizers. And, you know, so that's um, a nuance of California that, you know, instead of cover crops, you know, we may till in a little bit of compost or actually a lot of compost, but essentially we're making much bigger gains um, and sequestering much more carbon than if we just did year after year cover crops, which again, present some challenges in California. So working with the partners that Rebecca has brought along and some other folks that we've talked to, to help them understand, you know, the nuances in California, but also that we can have like these really kind of lofty and achievable goals, but we might, we might get there a little differently than what it might look like in the Midwest. But, you know, I think that's OK. I think it's, you know, you just need need good, credible data. And, uh, you know, you need a, a lot of, um, you know, uh, trust with the partners and just the, that understanding that, you know, we we might just approach regenerative a little bit differently here. But I I think that's OK. And I think we can make some great strides. But it's been a, it's been a lot of fun and um, we're learning as we go. But, um, yeah, we're flat planting cotton into a cover crop, which we normally don't do. I mean, we are doing some fundamentally kind of different things to try to be um, experimental and not have it, you know, look like our conventional system. You know, we do want it to have a, a different feel and a you know, different approach, but uh, that's why it's been nice to have the brands come to the table and support us, not with a subsidy, but with just saying, hey, you know, here's a price that we think is achievable for the brands. And then, you know, the grower has the right to say that works for me or it doesn't, and you know, that we can kind of approach it that way. But so far that's worked out really well. That's great. And then Rebecca, do, do you and your team 
kind of uh, do a lot of the reporting, data collection, reporting, communication between growers and um, I don't I don't want to say textile companies. Would that be the right term? What, what would be the right term? Textile brands. Yeah. Textile brands. Sure. Yeah. Brands. So is, is that kind of what you're doing? And if so, what are those, Cannon mentioned goals? You know, what are those important outcomes that those brands uh, want to track? They're interested in what Cannon mentioned, which is the increase in soil organic matter or soil organic carbon. And so there's been, again, I think at least two researchers, there was um, Dr. Weir and Dr. Daly who have been doing the baseline tests. And then Dr. Daly has done twice a year monitoring on one site. And we're just figuring out what, you know, what it looks like at scale. So there are some plant sciences at UC Davis and UC Extension, including Dr. Daly. There's been some conversation around, you know, what would the frequency of testing for soil organic carbon, including bulk density and including water infiltration, what does that look like on an annual basis across acreage? And what kind of price point do we put into the cotton so that the grower isn't taking on all of the monitoring? So at a, you know, if we we're looking at a thousand acres, it would probably be one sample per five acres at a certain, you know, maybe like probably a 12 inch depth and every 50 acres, maybe a 24 inch depth. We are still in the academic realm at the moment, but as we move out of the academic realm, what is monitoring look like that has a efficacy within the marketplace so that you're getting soil organic carbon indicators to the brands. It's indicating a trend, this direction, just again, a re-emphasis. It's like, Cannon, you're saying what, what I hear you saying is like, we've always been walking this walk, but we're just putting a little bit more gravity into some of this work into this direction. There's a little more emphasis on how we're landing on this work at this point. And so monitoring would support an understanding of how that emphasis is looking. And so right now the tests we're doing are extensive. Um, we have soil moisture monitoring in the ground. We're testing twice a year. We have soil microbial biomass. Um, we're looking at different DNA characteristics of the microbes. We're looking at carbon nitrogen ratios. We're looking at pH. We're looking at fungal dominance versus bacterial dominance. There's a panoply of those tests. So Dr. Daly shares back whatever the soil's indicating, and that's happening in those pre-competitive meetings. So the brands will just be like, oh, how's that? And so like, here's the tests. <laughs> and the positive, what's happening that's great is that soil aggregation, even in year one, started to change. So the glomulin or the fungal communities that generally produce that glomulin glue, they were starting to already form aggregates and aggregates tend to produce a soil that can have an increased water holding capacity during a rain event. So the soils there are very healthy. They responded immediately to, you know, just a little change here, a little change there. And I think that that will in turn trend towards what we would see in a three to five year period, which is an increase in in situ organic carbon. Uh, that's generally how long it takes to, to see that change, but it's trending that direction already. And again, the brands have the ability to, to hear directly from an academic. And that's really, I think, well, I know, <laughs> I know that that was a great way to build trust in the beginning to say, you know, it's not just the grower out there with their own probe or shovel, which is fine and definitely has efficacy. I would be fine with that. But, you know, when we're talking about markets and driving markets a certain direction to have a third party academic in there doing that work, 
has been extremely helpful. So we've been very, very grateful for the role of universities in this. And, and Canon, for you, you know, what, what has been the biggest challenge for you and your team as far as, you know, making sure that the, that the brands are getting good progress toward the goals they want you to work towards? Yeah, I mean, it's just, it's a new new project. And so again, I think um, having the partners understand, you know, changes in a natural system also are gonna take a little time. So I think, you know, having the credible data, you know, that, that Rebecca talked about and having third parties, you know, involved is, is really, really important. But I just think also just being excited and looking that like we can make change, but, you know, just seeing things from one year to the next, like I never would hang my hat on saying, you know, like, what if we take a soil sample this year and it looks like we doubled soil organic matter? Well, I mean, I'm going to need more time before I'm going to be comfortable that that's a long lasting result or you know, we probably need this. So I guess it's, it is it is that we are on a continuum of improvement together and that we're trying to achieve the goals. But, you know, we are sort of off into the unknown a little bit in terms of, um, you know, what are these different practices? Our compost site has been permitted since 2016, but we only got the contracts last year. So, you know, we're suddenly adding luxurious amounts of compost, but this is essentially since like June of last year, you know, so we're really just at the kind of beginning of this journey. And, you know, I think it's, uh, it's again, why you need to have a group of folks who are committed to a long-term positive outcome. You know, I think the, that's been the big downfall of sustainability and greenwashing has been too many people wanting to just shout about something that isn't maybe as tangible and as honest as it could be. And so I think what we're trying to build is that integrity into the program, not to say we won't talk about results that we're seeing from year to year and be excited or maybe be disappointed. But I think the most part is we would be looking to not make a judgment today or tomorrow or even in year two or three even we might be still learning so but i think the the basis behind it is a group of people who are coming together in a clear and transparent way using data sound methods to verify making you know commitment to each other that we're going to make improvements and do whatever we can to get there together and and again we may stumble we have stumbled here and there there has been some mistakes you know but again it's um it's part of working in a natural system. You know, we, we're not in a laboratory. We're not in a greenhouse. You know, we're out dealing with a whole bunch of other things. And we're, we are living in a world where, you know, mistakes can happen. They don't happen often. But, you know, again, I, I think it's just more about being thoughtful about that it is going to take a little time, you know, to make the changes that we're hoping to make. And, you know, being on the journey together, I think, is the main thing to me that's uh, that's very valuable. And, again, I think we can make great changes. It's just I'm, I'm going to hold on to, to screaming from the rooftops until we get some some good solid stuff up underneath our feet. Spoken with the practicality of somebody who's farmed a long time, I think. Um, with that, though, uh, you know, I know you grow several different crops, Cannon, and I imagine, you know, a real diverse crop rotation is uh, essential for you, both agronomically and, and in terms of conservation. So how does that play into things? If, if we're tracking, you know, the ground that this cotton was grown on this year, but next year it's going to be in something else, is that part of the program at all or is it uh you know how does that sort of figure in yeah that's a that's a great question it's one of the things we sort of wrestling with a little bit in terms of the diversity that we do have and the crop partners that you know do rely on us for you know different products you know every year and just from a soil agronomic health we don't want to plant the crop year after year uh the same crop into the field and so we are struggling a tiny bit just figuring out what the rotation crops will be because 
you know, we've got a great group of brands that have come on the fiber side and said, hey, look, we're willing to, you know, commit to figuring out regenerative cotton with you. But again, we're looking for those rotation partners right now who would maybe do like interested in a regenerative tomato. You know, those are a lot of the discussions we're having right now with our tomato partners. You know, with, is that a value in their supply chain to be able to say, you know, we're making investments in, uh, you know, soil health and carbon sequestration and all the same reasons that the brands of, in the cotton project are, are interested in. So we're in the middle of all those discussions. You know, we're uh, fortunate that we're in the early part of the cotton work that we're doing because we don't quite have to find the rotation crop quite yet. And um, I think uh, with some of the cover cropping and as much uh, compost and stuff as we're doing might push the rotation timing back just a little bit, but we certainly, we don't want it to be too static of a system. I think the the beauty of what we're doing here at uh, Bowles Farming Company is that we just have this really robust rotation and certainly would want to find more ways to work in different crops into that rotation. But um, it is one of the early challenges. You know, again, like I said, we're changing practices we're changing uh, how we do things and that again brings in risk and so if we can have some little bit of a premium to help offset if we get a bad yield result or you know some other challenge from trying to do the changes that we're trying to implement you know it's nicer to have a have a little bit of a higher crop price commitment to help offset any uh, potential negatives and hopefully like all the things bear out and yields uh, stabilize and get better but um, again I think early on when you make changes you're more prone to seeing some yield um, challenges and so we're um, we're trying to figure out some partnerships, but definitely want to have, I feel like diverse rotation should be part of a regenerative uh, system. Yeah. And I don't suppose those brands are using, I mean, I don't know if there's any other textile type crops that you can grow to rotate with. So it'd probably have to be with, like you mentioned, tomato or one of the food crops you grow. But Rebecca, why why California? Why, why focus on a, a state that has lost so many acres of cotton rather than going to like a, you know, a Texas or, or somewhere else that uh, is a big cotton producer? I think that the strength of California is in what most people consider kind of by the nature of the question, like, is that a weakness that it's contracting? Is it a weakness that it's so highly regulated? I would say those are its strengths. The strength in the contraction, while economically painful and displacing of some of the rural community and the jobs, I mean, granted, this is happening because of water. I also have been advocating that the coalition take very seriously that these conditions that are changing in California are in every alluvial valley across the world. The work they're doing in China, in Pakistan, in India, in Australia, South Africa, South America, every region is losing its snowpack. We happen to have a snowpack that is moving towards precipitation. <laughs> that's rain versus snow, that's happening everywhere. And I stay very consistent in my education and my support for them to understand that the beauty of California is that our agencies are watching this happen. And yes, they are looking at changes to agriculture that some of the land will go into multi-use benefit. The land that remains, which there will be plenty of agriculture still occurring, but the power of the regulatory frameworks and the shrinking is that we're starting to hit what I think would have been amazing to do all along, which is to say, what's the carrying capacity of this valley so that we can farm for 2000 years? If civilizations had asked those questions upon starting agricultural projects, you know, we wouldn't see some of the things we have repeated in human history. Of course, climate's always changing and populations disperse due to things that are far beyond our control. But I think there's an exciting 
question mark that I put to the brands because the brands are always basing their business model off of volume and continual growth. And to be doing that within a valley that is, you know, it's contracting. I say, you know, your volumes into the ecological carrying capacity. Because why brands have to keep asking or keep trying to fit into these sustainability goals, which frankly are hardly ever made. The benchmarks they set out to make are rarely made. Um, Our climate goals globally are not being made. And why is that happening? Because we keep trying to create eco-efficiency models, but growth and the the impact of growth keeps outpacing all these efficiency models. And that's by the math true. You can look at Roland Geyer's work and all the math he did in the business of less from the Bren School at UC Santa Barbara. So I'm like, hey, brands, <laughs> this is great. This is happening everywhere. Try to fit your supply chain goals and growth model. Try to actually think about contracting into the ecological carrying capacity of all the locations that you're sourcing cotton from. And California being as regulated as it is, you can trust this state is able to hold you as a brand accountable to being more sustainable. Right. Yeah. And Canon, along similar lines, you know, you're very engaged, I know, in California water. And I'm sure you probably hear comments to the effect of, you know, why would we be using our precious little water for something like cotton as opposed to something we can eat, you know, that sustains life in, in terms of food? You know, what, what is your response to, to, to that sort of line of thinking? Yeah, you know, I think uh, Rebecca made a lot of great points, you know, about, about sustainability and the carrying capacity. I mean, I think, you know, the truth is that even though there's water stress in California, you know, it is a climate that, you know, you get flashy periods of wet and dry, and that's always been our history. And, you know, we're going to have to figure out new management strategies and all those things. But ultimately, I think there's in general, there's going to be enough enough water for there to be agricultural production in the Central Valley for decades to come. I mean, we're we're at the table trying to work on collaborative solutions. I think everybody's acknowledged there's going to be a certain amount of land that's only reliant on groundwater that's going to probably go out of production. But I think, you know, there's a lot of us who have a long history of certain amount of access to surface water and kind of in some more, uh, you know, sustainable basins where we uh, where we can continue to farm. And then I guess my thought from that is, um, you know, California is is really the the place where you want agriculture to be happening uh, in terms of the quality of the products that we can produce are unique. The uh, regulatory, you know, values behind what we produce are unique. You know, the you compare us to any other cotton producing region in the world, and and we pay the highest wages. We pay our workers overtime. We have health care. We have, uh, you know, all these different protections. We know our farm has a retirement program and scholarship programs, and you know, we give back to our community, and you know, just do so much of of the right thing that people, you know, want to see out of out of farms. And then again. Uh, you know, especially with a product like cotton, where it's out in the world, it's it's this wonderful fiber that we all are are owning and using. And uh, yet, you know, again, we shouldn't be sourcing from places that run contrary to our values. So again, I think uh, you know, cotton production is never going to be huge uh, in California. Again, probably we've uh, seen you know huge erosion of of what we once had. The infrastructure that supported that larger industry is gone now. Um, just a handful of cotton gins are left, but. Um, Really, the, the folks who are here left and doing it are, are, again, producing something that's unique. It's not just the average cotton fiber that's sitting around anywhere and uh, also done with, you know, just the highest level of care 
for people and, and the environment. And that's what, um, you know, a lot of people are concerned about. A lot of future generations and younger generations are wanting to, you know, connect with those who are, uh, you know, making things that they're using. And so I think, um, you know, we've got a, a bright future of, of continuing, but we need, you know, understanding and partnerships. And, you know, I think California really is the right place. And, you know, even if you look at the amount of water per drop, what we produce, uh, you know, is, is, is a lot more than any other irrigated agricultural place and uh you know the rain fed places don't produce the quality that we can produce so um you know you give me a drop of water and anything i am going to do with it is going to be more productive than the drop of water that's uh, landing somewhere else just because of this amazing mediterranean climate that we have so you know we're the right place to grow with the right regulations and the right attitudes i think of the people who are left uh, doing this work so i'm always you know really proud of what we have done and what we are going to keep doing and um, you know, I think the consumer just needs to needs to hear that a little bit more. And I think the brands are the key to be the translators of the story. And that's why it's really nice to be working with them. All right. Well, that's going to do it for today's episode. Thank you so much to Canon Michael and to Rebecca Burgess from the California Cotton and Climate Coalition, or C4. You can check them out at CaliforniaCottonAndClimateCoalition.com. It's a little bit long, so I'll just provide it for you in the show notes. You can click on it right there. Super interesting stuff. And I, I really think the collaboration piece cannot be overstressed in this story. And whenever you read anything that tries to oversimplify what it takes to make supply chains more sustainable, I hope you'll remember remember this episode and remember just how much work needs to go into doing this right. Thanks again to both Canon and Rebecca for being on the show. And thanks for those of you who continue to share this content online or individually with your friends. Really, the best thing you can do to support this podcast is listen, which obviously you're already doing. And the second best thing is to share it with someone else you think might enjoy it. Thanks also to Sound Agriculture for supporting this quarter of the podcast. And thank you for your time and your attention. I don't take it lightly. I'll be back next week with another story of ag innovation. 